When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to a special episode of the Bigger Pockets Business Podcast. Welcome to a real-world MBA from the School of Hard Knocks, where entrepreneurs reveal what it really takes to make it. Whether you're already in business or you're on your way there, this show is for you. This is Bigger Pockets Business. Hey there, everybody. Jay and Carol Scott here with you today for a very special episode of the Bigger Pockets Business Podcast. We have such a super fun episode today. So here's the deal. During the Bigger Pockets conference in Nashville 2019, which by the way was absolutely amazing. If you weren't there, you truly should have been. There were over 1,000 community members, and it was absolutely amazing every single day. Everybody was sharing so much information, knowledge, great networking, amazing presenters and speakers, and just an overall fantastic conference. Here's the deal: all six of the Bigger Pockets podcast hosts were at the same place in the same time on the same stage. Brandon, David, Mindy, Scott, Jay, and me, and one more special podcast host guest, Josh Dorgan. We were just all together. We took audience questions. We answered questions from community members that had been submitted beforehand. We got to know each other even better, and it was all around amazing time. It was a whole lot of fun, and I think you guys are going to love it. Now, before we jump in, I just want to mention that that voice you hear at the beginning of the episode and throughout the episode is our moderator and VP of Growth at Bigger Pockets, Mr. David Meyer. So, without any further ado, let's jump in to the special episode of the Bigger Pockets Business Podcast. Woo! Yeah! All right. How's everyone doing? Awesome, awesome. Well, welcome to this very special recording of the Bigger Pockets podcast. This is uh, a really new thing for us. We're really excited to have all six of our awesome Bigger Pockets podcast hosts here, as well as founder Josh Dorkin. We have seven awesome guests for you. Uh, the format is going to be a little free flowing. We've never done anything like this before, but we would love if you could come up with some questions. Um, and come stand at the microphones in either aisle, and we will have our esteemed panelists answer for you. So start thinking of some questions while we're getting rolling here. First, I'm going to introduce everyone, even though you probably know who these people are. We have Scott Trench, host of the Bigger Pockets Money podcast, along with his co-host Mindy Jensen. (laughs) 
hosts of the Real Estate Podcast, Brandon Turner and David Green. Founder of Bigger Pockets and honorary podcast host, Josh Dorkin. He's going to cry. <laughs> and the host of our newest podcast, Jay and Carol Scott. All right, so I would love to start by just getting a sense of who here listens to the Bigger Pockets Real Estate Podcast. Yeah. Okay, every, every single person here. That's what we thought. How about the money show? All right, right. pretty good. How about our newest show, The Business Show? All right, great. So if you guys have some questions, you can start lining up. But while you're doing that, I'd love to just get a show of hands here for people. How many of you out there have yet to do your first real estate deal? A handful of you. Awesome. Great to know. How many of you have done like one to five? Wow. Me too. And then five plus. Wow. wow, great. Awesome. So we have a real wide gambit of people here, which is excellent. Hopefully you all are networking and meeting each other. And uh, yeah, hopefully, is everyone having a great time at the conference so far? All right, great. So before we go on, I should introduce myself. My name is Dave Meyer. I am the VP of Growth at Bigger Pockets. I am also a real estate investor, and I am the one person charged with trying to keep Seven people with large egos um, in check during yeah. during this during this <laughs> yeah during this podcast. So um, we'd love to open it up to the audience. So, sir, in the aisle here on the right, what is your question for our panel? Hi, I'm looking to invest some funds. I've got in IRA and Roth IRA. Are there specific products that work better for the tax sheltered or tax advantaged accounts than others? Anything to avoid or anything that works exceptionally well there? Uh, I thought about uh, note investing. Great. Jay, did you want to take this one? Sure, I'm happy to take it. I'm not a tax tax professional. I'm not a legal professional. I'll start with that, so so don't uh, rely on anything I say. Um, But the nice thing about a Roth or a traditional IRA is it's either tax-deferred or tax-free or pre-taxed. So essentially, the first recommendation is focus on any investments that would otherwise have a high tax burden. So you don't want to take investments that are already taxed advantage, like rental properties. Rental properties are typically going to pay low tax. And I'm not saying don't do those in your, in your IRA, but don't necessarily make those your first choice because the benefit of a tax-free or a tax-deferred retirement plan is that you're not paying taxes. So focus on those investments that you would otherwise pay ordinary income taxes, higher income taxes. So things like lending, things like notes, um, flips in some cases. There are obviously rules around doing your own flips. You want to be careful there. But first things first, focus on those things that otherwise would have a high tax burden. Next, 
because of the rules around IRAs. You can't be overly involved. You can have certain involvement in your investments, but you can't have day-to-day active involvement in your investments. So typically what I tell people is focus on those types of investments that don't require you to have day-to-day active involvement. Something like a flip. There are ways to do flips out of an IRA, but you put yourself at risk if you find yourself managing contractors or buying materials. So it's a lot easier to get in trouble when you're doing active investments out of an IRA. So I typically recommend focus on those investments that are passive or more passive. So notes are a great investment out of an IRA. Uh, Lending is a great investment. I do all of my lending out of my IRA. So those are the two big things I would say, passive and high taxed or high, high, otherwise high taxed. Great. Awesome. So in addition to the people who are lining up and thank you, we'll get to all your questions. We at, we did have a survey uh, where we asked all of the attendees to submit some questions. So I have some up here that will also be interjecting. And the first one here, we'll go with you, David, is how does being a realtor help you as a real estate investor? How do you deal with the balance between the two professions? Well, I'm in kind of a unique situation in the sense that I'm a realtor, but I don't do much investing in my own market. So most people think about getting their license because they think it's going to help them find deals where they live. And it's probably not going to do that nearly as much as what you would think. Access to the MLS is something a buyer's agent can give you very, very easily. I mean, that's, it's almost like just it's, it's as easy as it can be. You don't need your license to be able to get into that. Being a realtor can hurt you in a sense when you go after a deal because you have to disclose to the person you're buying the house that you are doing this with the intention of making a profit. And you can just set yourself up to get in a lot of trouble because if they're looking at you as a fiduciary that's telling them this is what their house is worth and you're trying to get it for the best price that you possibly can, there's a big conflict of interest. And as a licensed agent, you're not supposed to do that. So in a lot of ways, if you're trying to invest in your own market, having a license is a bad idea. What I tell people is that you shouldn't be an agent unless you want to learn the job of being an agent. If you want to commit to that craft and mastering that craft and representing people, Uh, then you should go for it. Now, I love doing that because I love real estate. So why wouldn't I want to go be a real estate agent? I like looking about it. I like talking about it. It's kind of my whole life in a lot of ways. So of course I do it. It does help me when I invest in other markets because I understand the language of real estate. I know how to talk to other real estate agents and I know what, what motivates them. I know what they care about. When that agent isn't getting me what I need, I know that I can say, well, why don't you let me talk to your broker? And I can ask questions of that person who's going to go tell the agent, this is what you have to do. I recognize when an agent's good faster than some of you might because I work in that industry all the time and I know what questions they, sh- they should be answering. I know what, what they should be giving me. And I know when they're pushing back, that's a good sign. If that agent's just saying yes, yes, yes to everything I asked, that they're telling me yes, but they're doing no. They're not doing anything. If they're pushing back and they're saying no, that's just not something I'm going to do, I recognize that that's a really good agent. So if you love real estate and you don't love your job, you should honestly look at if being a real estate agent is the best move for you. You might like it a lot more than what you do. It puts you around real estate. You will learn more by proxy just because you're around it. And the stuff that you're studying will actually help you to make money. You can make good money as a real estate agent if you're good. And if you guys are here, I mean, you've flown from all across the country to come learn about real estate. There's probably a very good chance that you like it just as much as I do. Putting that passion to play in your job is an awesome feeling. You'll, you'll enjoy going to work every day. But it works better to take your investing knowledge and make money as a real estate agent than it does to take your real estate agent knowledge and try to apply that to investing. Awesome. Great. Can I also, oh. can I also throw Yeah, you can, you can leave now. <laughs> Hold it. Hold it. I, I want to throw out one more thing. For anybody here that might be interested in growing a real estate sales team, 
Uh, David Green, he doesn't talk about this a whole lot, but has a tremendously successful real estate sales team in, Cal- in Northern California under Keller Williams. Uh, he was on episode, I don't remember, it might have been episode 15 or 16 of the business podcast. <laughs> so just to plug it. But seriously, he talks in detail about how and what it takes to, to grow a tremendously successful real estate sales career and sales team. So if you're interested in that, definitely check out David's episode on the business podcast. Awesome. Great. All right. Smooth, Jay, that you gave me a compliment that got people to tune into your podcast. (laughs) (laughs) That's what we're nicely done. (laughs) Well done, Jay. Awesome, Uh, sir. In the back there. Thanks, Steve Schaefer from Fargo, North Dakota. First of all, thank you all so much. I've read your stuff. I've listened to the podcast. Plural, creepy amounts. So thanks. Um, I can't. I'm like giddy to wait here, David. Turn this question into an analogy. Just giddy. But this one's maybe a little nitty-gritty. I know everybody's got different experiences. Um, I'm in Fargo, North Dakota. I'm a multifamily guy. Um, Love the market. Things are going awesome. Um, But we have kind of an interesting problem where we've had an overbuilt, you know, a lot of permits granted in the last couple of years in in mainly A-class, really, really nice apartments, which is awesome. Um, So we've got this, you know, great new availability, these wonderful apartments in Fargo. They they have pretty significant vacancy right now um, as that market adjusts. And so overall market vacancies between 8 and 11%. Um, we in the BNC classes get compressed, of course, right, as the A people move down. Um, things that I have done to stand out, um, places that should have a laminate countertop, we put in butcher block. Um, tiled bath surrounds that are normally fiberglass, that kind of stuff. Um, and then catering to pets. So putting like, you know, a, a fence up and now we have a dog run. And so some lower cost amenities and some things that make sense. Um, any other suggestions in a market that has maybe slightly than higher normal vacancy, all the metrics are awesome. It's going to balance out in time. The standout to have your vacancy, you know, much lower than the average. Uh, any, any strong suggestions in that way? Brandon, you want to take that one? Um, sure. I mean, my, my thought goes to 95% of all landlords are absolutely horrible at marketing. So I, I, I mean, I'm a marketing guy, so I like, I, that's where I approach it from is I'm just going to do a better job than everybody else marketing because it's everything. If you listen to the podcast or webinars, everything's a funnel to me, like everything. So if there are a million tenants in your area, how many know about you? How many are calling you? How many are uh, signing an application? How many are moving in? So I would personally approach it from, the, from a marketing standpoint. Uh, and I mean, everything else I would say is the, the line I say oftentimes is even C-class tenants watch Chip and Joanna games. Yeah. So they love the butcher block counters and stuff. So as long as you're competing in that area, then it just comes down to a marketing thing for me. But anybody else want to jump in on it? I'll throw out one thing. So I, I had lunch today with uh, Chris Clothier from Memphis Invest. And for those that don't know uh, Chris's business, he, uh, they are a turnkey company and they do management. They manage the properties that they sell. They have 6,000 properties under management in the Southeast. And I asked him what his typical turnover was. And they're, it's not multifamily, they're all single family. Um, and they're probably not A-class. But I asked him what his turnover was. And he said, in a typical year, their turnover is 18%. Wow. So for those that aren't familiar, typical turnover is a tenant about every 22 months or about 45%. So the fact that he has such low turnover, my obvious next question was, what are you doing differently? And he basically attributed it to two things. Um, one, 
properties were nicely renovated. So he renovated properties before he put tenants in. So tenants walked in, their first impression was good, and they didn't have a lot of maintenance issues that wanted to keep them around. But he said the big one was simply good tenant-landlord relationship. He said good customer service is the differentiator. Landlording is a commodity. Property management is a commodity business. And if you can differentiate yourself with amazing customer service, your tenants are going to stay because they know that most landlords aren't going to do that. So I'm, I'm not saying it would necessarily work in your business or make a difference, but yeah, for, no, some, for somebody that has 6,000 6, uh, units under management and 18% turnover, uh, he's somebody worth listening to. Awesome, thanks. And I'm going to piggyback on, on what uh, Jay just said. You know, w- one of the reasons that people in this industry get, get a bad name is because we don't provide that service. You know, the, the folks who stand out are the folks who are taking care of their tenants. They're doing good flips. They're not putting lipstick on a pig. They're not just slapping stuff around. You know, this industry, you need to, you need to have pride. You, you walk out, we all look good, right? You guys are all dressed nice and everything else, but you may have a property and you let it run like crap, right? Because it's cheaper or it's easier. But that's not going to help you grow. That's not going to help you grow. That's why one of the big things at Bigger Pockets that we've always emphasized was be good to each other, be good to the community, take care of one another, and take care of your clients. So if you start doing that and you start talking to other, other folks out there, you're going to notice other people don't care. They really don't. So if you guys commit to that and you say, hey, listen, you know what? I'm, I'm going to be the best. I'm going to communicate with them. Give them multiple, multiple ways to communicate, whether it's text, whether whatever it is, right? Create forms, create platforms and ways for your people to to complain and then actually deal with those. Don't just pass it aside. This stuff is really, really important. It's really, really not difficult, but it is the difference between that low and high turnover. And it's also a difference in a good and a bad reputation. And I think some of the best landlords that I happen to know are the ones who've grown their business through word of mouth. You know, hey, listen, I've got this this building. We just got a new property. I know that this person wants to move up from the C to the B, and I've got the C, and I'm about to pick up the B. I have that relationship with my tenant. I can move them up, right? You're not going to have that vacancy over there in that B. You may have it in the C, which is probably a little better than, this, than having it in the B. Anyway, point being, I think it was a great point, Jay, and, and uh, yeah, be there for your, your folks. Did you still want an analogy? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> yes, I think please. Mindy wanted to jump in as well. Can it be involved in jump- you falling down? I, w- I want to jump in really quick. I'm surprised nobody said short-term rentals. What is the short-term rental market? I'm not familiar with Fargo, but um, there's short-term and there's like longer short-term. So traveling nurses, yep. um, it, they have oil and gas up there, right? Or we do, oil- yep. So the, the workers that are there, if you can provide furnished rentals for short or slightly longer term, like corporate housing, that's also a very, could be a viable option. Yeah, that's a great suggestion. And it and works really well for us in the winter. We do use that some. So, yeah, excellent suggestion, though. Thanks. All right, great. All right. Do it. <laughs> so, so you got a B-class, C-class unit, and you're worried about losing your tenants to A-class, right? Yes. you got to think that you got a girlfriend. <laughs> <laughs> and you're cool, but he's got a six-pack. <laughs> he's got a Ferrari, Right? He's got a jaw like a Greek god, and, and you're like, you're, you're cool. Are you right? describing me? You'll lose her if you don't Thanks, take baby. extra good care of her. That's what everybody's telling you. Yeah. 
You better be buying flowers. You better be telling her how you feel. You better be writing love letters. <laughs> if you put more effort into it, you can keep that tenant. But you're not uh, the Italian stuntman with the Ferrari and the six-pack who's just going to show up and wave a shiny object, right? You, you nailed it. That's perfect. I think... Oh, wow. I think <laughs> I thought, I thought under all that pressure, you might not live up to the expectation, but you, you crushed that one. It is a lot of pressure. Uh, all right, sir, over here on the right. Eric Delaney, Lincoln, Nebraska. Um, I want to house hack and preferably be RRRR uh, for myself and my kids. Right? What's that? Why is that funny? Uh, for myself and my kids to get a foothold, uh, right? Um, so, and I've got a partner, and we've got a little bit of money and a couple different sources. So, in order to do that, we've got to go a little bit higher in the market uh, and cobble together our finances to buy that piece, right? But in our market, the best way to find something like that so far, to me, has been on the MLS, right? And so, there, and in our market again, um, those sellers are asking for pre-approval immediately, right? you got to have that. You're not even in the game, right? So, cobbling together finances like that or funding like that becomes tricky when I'm trying to do that. So what I'm looking for is a strategy ethically to, to have that piece of paper or some kind of evidence going in the door on my first offer. I can say, hey, look, I got it. Here's my offer. Did you, did you talk to a lender by getting a pre-approval? Yes, yes, right. But that's the thing. Our, our resources don't revolve around a, a traditional, so you conventional. So you can't get pre-approved is what you're saying, right? Not for the number that we need, no. Okay, can you get a hard money lender to give you a pre-approval and buy it that way and then refinance into the traditional one later? Part of it. That's what I mean. So it's like I'd have yeah. to get... So think of it from the seller's perspective. They don't really care where the money comes from. They just want to know you have the money. If you have the cash, that's fine. If you can get proof of funds from some friends and note saying he'll, we'll let him borrow the money, that's fine. If it's a hard money lender, if it's a traditional financing, they just want to know that you have the ability to close. But you want to know that I can get into the, sh- the cheapest interest rate that I possibly can. So what I tell people when they're in that kind of a situation is don't try to hit a home run on every pitch. You don't have to get... I just did it again, didn't I? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> you don't have to get the perfect financing for you and the perfect situation for the seller all wrapped up in the same move. Break it into small pieces. Get them the, the, the uh, assurance that they need so that they know you can close on the deal. You close on the deal. Then at the same time, you're working with the lender to figure out what do you need from me so that I can get this interest rate and break that into three or four smaller steps. Right on. Thanks. How, awesome. how confident are you that you're going to close on that deal? Any, any particular deal? On any deal? I'm confused. Uh, so, so you make an offer to a seller. The seller accepts. It's a financed offer. How confident are you that you'll come up with the money? Absolutely, totally confident. Okay. It's not a question. Then put down as big of a non-refundable earnest money deposit as possible, and the seller is going to think, okay, I hope he walks. I'll take the 20K and and go find another (laughs) buyer. So put down a a big enough EM deposit that that they're hoping you don't follow through, and they'll accept that offer in a heartbeat. Gotcha. Thanks. Awesome. All right. So, Scott, I have a question for you. You are a famously frugal person, are you not? (laughs) (laughs) I hope that's not. Yeah. Yes. (laughs) All right. So we have a question from the audience here. If you had to spend $10,000 on yourself, you weren't allowed to invest it, what would you spend it on? All right. First, I would, I would, the grocery bill, lots of fruit, nice and healthy food. I'm a huge nut for that. Second, 
Uh, I, I'm, I'm, you know, there's one thing that you know about somebody who does CrossFit is that they will tell you that they do CrossFit. Yes. So I would spend it on my CrossFit membership that, I, that I'm working on there. Uh, and then I'd put probably the rest towards uh, I'm getting married next year, so the wedding. So that's probably... I think even when forced to splurge on yourself, you do like the healthiest, yeah. most positive things that you could possibly <laughs> do. My audible membership. Yeah, <laughs> the entire collective works of bigger pockets. Just try and learn as much as yeah. you can. Awesome. Um, all right, Carol, I have a question for you. Oh, boy. So if you could start over in investing, what would you wish you knew at the beginning that you know now? Different husbands. Oh, all... gosh, don't say that out loud. <laughs> Wow. What would we do different in the beginning? I'll tell you what. We've talked a lot about this in um, a lot of the different sessions. And Brandon talked about it this morning, the whole concept of just because Jay and I have worked together since the very beginning. And in the very beginning, I knew absolutely nothing about any of this. He knew absolutely nothing about any of this. But we were both convinced we knew absolutely everything about everything. So we decided that we were just going to both run the show. And we fought like crazy. I'm just going to be throwing <laughs> out there. We, we had a tough couple of years. So I wish in the very beginning that we would have understood this whole concept of not only in real estate investing, but in any business of really figuring out what it is that I really, really like to do and I'm really, really good at doing and what he likes to do and he's really, really good at doing. And then taking that a step further and actually just let him do what he's good at doing instead of me <laughs> deciding that I was really better at it than he was. So it, for me, the biggest thing that would have made all the difference would have been just to trust each other in the specific roles that we had. One other thing that I think was specific to our situation, it's a, it's a hindsight is twenty twenty type of thing. Um, like many, I think it took us a while to get started, and we fell into this whole situation in Atlanta in 2008, and we basically walked right into a gold mine and did not realize it. So what I wish we would have done differently is purchased every single house that was available out there and not sold them for a really long time. And how that translates to right now is when you're on your investing journey, Yes, you run the numbers. Yes, you analyze and come up with exit strategy after exit strategy to make sure it's a safe investment. But also trust your gut. Go with what you know is going to work. Trust in yourself and know that these risks are worth it. And ask yourself, what's the absolute worst scenario that could happen? So you lose some money. You know what? It's not the end of the world. Worst case, you go back and get a regular job, right? Your health is all that matters. Your health, your family, having financial freedom and having the ability to do what you want with your time. So go with your heart, go with your gut, and not just with the numbers. Nice. That's great. Josh, I'm curious if you have anything to add sort of as a, from an entrepreneurial perspective, uh, sort of what do you wish you knew at the beginning of starting Bigger Pockets that you know now? Ooh, that's a good one. Um, I think Carol picked out a really good point about trusting your gut. Um, I'm going to talk about this tomorrow. I definitely would have hired my first employee way, way, way sooner than eight years in. So, I mean, but, but truthfully, it's, there were a lot of reasons that I waited for that t amount of time. And a lot of it had to do with confidence. I didn't want to take out debt to build my business. And I couldn't afford Brandon Turner. I mean, look, look at him. 
Um, so, um, but but that was that was one of the big things uh, was was hire more quickly, uh, grow up more quickly, have more confidence in what I was building. The, the fear stuff is is a really big one, and, and I think over the years, you know, the thousands and thousands of people I've spoken to, uh, you know, in, in Bigger Pockets community, fear is the thing that stops everybody. And that fear is not only stopping somebody from getting started, it's also stopping the next person, person from scaling. And it's ter- stopping the person from scaling who suddenly, you know, is facing objections because the market's shifting from actually shifting their business as well. And so, as Carol said, one of the biggest things um, I think really would be to, to do that, to trust your gut, uh, that knowledge. You're never going to know everything. I, you, you look at these people on the stage here and you think, hey, these guys know everything. Like, I'm sorry, we, we, we're all still learning. And if anyone ever tells you that they know everything, run. Because they don't know what they're talking about and they're full of shit. So I, I think that would be, that would be uh, some, some little trinkets of advice. Mindy knows everything, though. Yeah. yeah, she does. Before we get back to the audience questions, Jay, you said that you and Brandon had prepared an interpretive dance for us <laughs> when we were getting ready. Is now yeah, now's the, a good time? That, that's just for the VIPs. We'll do that. We'll oh, do okay, that. Okay. Later, After the cocktail private party, private, private session. Okay, great. We were, we were going to do it over on Little Beach. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Yeah. Um, check in with them at the cocktail party about that. Uh, all right. So let's get back to some of the audience questions, uh, sir, over here. Uh, thanks again for this conference. Uh, this is Kyle Mast, uh, CFP and real estate investor from Oregon. Um, I'm going to go to the next generation here, on, and anyone can take this. What is the most important thing that you will teach your children or have taught your children or wish you would have taught your children about real estate investing? I have a two-year-old son. Very selfish question. Go for it. I, I'm going I'm to take it, and then I'm going to hand it over. So I, honestly, I think the best advice was not necessarily one that I would teach my child, but it's advice that I would take for those people who are about to have a child. And this is where I hand it over to Brandon, who at the birth of each child acquires a property in their name. Why don't you explain kind of your strategy? Yeah, yeah. I, um, a lot of you know this already, but when Rosie was born, I bought her a fourplex the week she was born. Now, it's in my name. I get the cash flow from it. But we put on an 18-year mortgage, so in 18 years, it's paid off to zero, and that it will be worth three to $400,000 at that time. That funds our whole college. But more importantly is, to answer your question, is from the, I mean, she already knows, like, every time we're visiting the area now, because we moved, but when we're down that area, I take her by it, and I say, this is your property, and this is yours. And then when she's probably five years old, she's going to start seeing, this is the money that came in, and this is how much money went out. And then when she's a little older, I'm going to teach her, you know, this is, uh, you know, all of the expenses and all the income. And by the time she's in college, I hope she doesn't go to college, right? I hope that will be the lesson that she's taught over 18 years. And our little boy who's born, uh, you know, December 7th-ish, uh, I will do the same thing for him. And uh, he'll get a property as well. And what's cool about the strategy is no matter where, you can just pretty much buy any property anywhere in the country. It doesn't even technically have to cash flow. And just put on a 15-year mortgage and your tenants will pay for your kid's college education. So anyway, it's not about the college education. It's about the, that lesson. Uh, and I'll follow up with one more second thing is when, when Rosie is 11 years old and... Uh, my you know, little boy is nine or eight or whatever the math is. I'm not good at math. But however that works. Uh, Don't tell people yeah, that. Yeah. You, you. <laughs> <laughs> That's why I use the Bigger Pockets rental property calculator. <laughs> so, and if you sign up today, I'll give you a discount. No, um, so I want 
when, when their friends wonder why their dad can't go on the field trip with them, and when their friends wonder why their dad isn't at the ball game, and Rosie starts to wonder, why is dad always at my stuff? <laughs> like, like, in a good way, right? I want, like, that is the impact I want to make. Because we can't teach somebody that. You can't tell somebody that. But that's something that they'll just know, that there's something different. I want to add to that, Brandon. It's exactly what you said, because Jay and I, we do this full time now, and our boys are 15 months apart, eight, and one just turned 10. And in addition to it just being something that they know, we make sure we remind them all the time. Like, we talk about it. We're like, we're here. Yep, get used to it, because we're going to be at every little last thing. And why is that? Because we don't spend all of our money, we invest our money and we put it towards other things. And so they get that on a daily basis. The other thing that we tell our boys constantly, and I was having this conversation with Shannon at lunch today, is that they are living in such an amazing time, right? With all of this technology that's available out there, anything you could ever possibly want to learn to do any person that you could ever want to mentor you or, or anyone you want to connect with, learn from, is available at your fingertips, right? So we, t- we remind them every single day. You want to learn how to do origami? Great. Go online and figure it out. Oh, and while you're doing that, why don't you start making them into Christmas ornaments and selling them? So just continuously letting them realize they're, they're just growing up in such an amazing time where the world truly is at their fingertips and they can do whatever the heck they want to do with hard work, and if they make some sacrifices, they don't have to have these amazing video games and clothes and all of those things, that there are so many better ways to invest your money. We've been telling them that since they were babies. And just to add to that, I know Carol and I kind of grew up in similar situations. Our families had very little money. Uh, Our families didn't talk about money. I never knew how much money my family made. I didn't know where it went. I didn't know how much (laughs) things cost. Um, I didn't know how to balance a checkbook when I got out of high school. Um, And we've always vowed that with our kids, we're not going to make that same mistake. And money is not a taboo subject in our house. Our kids know how much money we make. They know how much we spend. They know how, how much things cost. And we're very purposeful about communicating that and, and letting them know they can ask those questions. Everything we do, we try to bring back to the real world. And our kids, like Carol said, are eight and nine, or I guess eight and 10 now. And a lot of people look at our kids and go, well, they're too young to really understand investing, but they're not. They can start to learn simple concepts. And so a couple of the things we do is a couple years ago, I started borrowing money from my kids. So my kids would get money for birthdays or holidays or something like that, and they always know they take some of that money and they donate it. They take some of that money and they put it in the bank. They take money, some of that money and they spend it. And what we talked about was that money you're going to take and put in the bank, how about this? Why don't you lend it to mom and dad? Mom and dad will pay you interest. And not just are we going to pay you interest, but we're going to do this the correct way. We're going to write up what's called a promissory note. It's going to say, Chase, my son, is lending dad this much money for this amount of time at this interest rate with payments paid at, these, at this scheduled time and very large interest payments. Generally, it's 100% interest like every other month. Um, because let, let's be realistic. As adults, how exciting is it to get a $5 check or a $5 interest payment on your savings account every month? Even if it's 10% interest, if you only have $1,000 in there and you're only making 50 bucks a month, it's not exciting. 
And so for kids, you have to add that excitement. It has to feel like it's adding up. So we give them high interest rates, but they actually sign this promissory note. They take this promissory note. They have a little kids. It's like a piggy bank. It's a safe. And they put the promissory note in there. And it's their job every month. Well, it's my job every month to pay them. But if I forget to pay them, it's their job to come tell me, you owe me money. Oh, and there's a penalty on there if you're not paying me by the fifth of every month. (laughs) Completely seriously. And so they're excited. I'll sometimes purposely not pay them because they get really excited. Like you can tell by the third or fourth of the month, they're like, kind of like, hey, dad, hey, dad. And then the fifth of the month, they're like, you owe me extra. (laughs) And so things like that. Last summer, they started, they did their first lemonade stand. And instead of just giving them money or buying them lemonade, we talked about, okay, we need to figure out how much the materials cost. And we need to do a cost of goods. And mom and dad are going to let you borrow $50. You're going to buy cups. You're going to buy lemonade. You're going to buy the tablecloth and the sign and all of that. And by the way, here's an IOU. You owe us $50. They went out. They sold lemonade. They came back in. And I said, okay, now we're going to do a profit and loss statement. We're going to figure out how much money you have in your, in your little box. And that's your income. Minus the cost of goods. How much did you spend on lemonade and all this? What were your other expenses? And then your bottom line. That's how much money you made. And every day that they go out and do a lemonade stand, they come in and they do a profit and loss statement. And it's obviously a lot simpler than the profit <laughs> and loss statement that we do in our business. But it starts to get them thinking about the fact that you don't just, somebody doesn't just give you lemonade and you just make money and you keep all the money that you actually have to spend money in a business to make money. And if you spend too much, my kids asked me a couple years ago, like, so if I want to sell more, why don't I just lower the price? Like, I can just make it really low and people will buy lots of it. And well, they don't understand necessarily if you make the price too low, you're going to lose money. And so this actually puts it in, in, in terms that they can understand. So start doing those things with your kids, even if they're really young, even if it's just on a really small scale, start doing real world things with them. Talk about money, talk about how much things cost, and don't be scared to have those conversations because uh, my parents were scared to have them with me, and, and it took me a long time to kind of learn all of this and get out of debt. Uh, Jay, I will lend you money at 100% interest (laughs) as much as you want. So I I make my kids negotiate that interest. And so they can can also practice. We we talk about negotiation. 95. 95%. Is this a new financial independence strategy where you just teach your kids to work and then you don't have to anymore? (laughs) That sounds great. Okay, so Jay took most of my answer. Um, talk to your kids about money, but you ask, what would we, what would I teach them? Um, I'm trying to impart upon them that they need to become real estate agents at the age of 18. All right. All right, sir, over here. Hey, I wanted to ask a little bit more of a fun question and give Jay a plug. It's episode 20, uh, David's uh, episode, where he did interview questions. I thought it was awesome. So David, this plays to you a little bit with the analogies. Um, The question is, Imagine a world where there's no humans left and only animals. And what animal would you be and why? This is great. Wait, what? Can we answer or does he have to? This is exactly the kind of question I was hoping people would ask. (laughs) Please start asking more of these questions. I think we should just go down the line on this one. Jacob from Ann Arbor, Michigan. (laughs) Scott? Uh, I'd go. I'd go with an eagle. Like, who wants? Who wouldn't want to soar on the updrafts and hang around and, and be above everything else? Go with that. Do you have any idea? <laughs> All right, we'll come back to you, Brandon. 
I want to be a super chicken. <laughs> there, are, there are chickens out there, and then there are super chickens, which are like the best chickens. I want to be a super chicken. But like, the fluffy, like the fluffy ones? They dominate, they dominate the, the field, but they also shelter everybody and make sure everyone is protected from the foxes and the eagles. You're a warrior chicken. <laughs> I'm a warrior chicken. So are we, are we turning into animals like human beings are not allowed? And we Just can morph into what we want to be morphed into? Or are we reborn as an animal? I'm not, I need more clarity. Yeah, reborn is a, is a good way. Uh, Does that matter? <laughs> he needs backstory. Was he stalling, needs context. Honestly. Because yeah. this is hard, right? If you give yourself a lame animal, everyone will look at you lame. Like, Brandon just called himself a chicken. <laughs> a lot of you are going to come talk to me instead of Brandon now because you're like, well, that, you kind of suck. But if you go with a cool animal that's kind of arrogant... Right? And you just kind of made yourself a D-bag. So I, I, I really did have to stall. And I'm a little too tired to stall any longer. So, uh, yeah, for those, for those who didn't know, David's flight was canceled last night or messed up. And so he ended up sleeping an hour and then getting here this morning at, like, whatever. So he, uh, he had an adventure to get here. So you should be so what's a... what's an animal that sleeps Yeah, what's an animal that does sloth. sloth. I think but the yeah, sloth is actually really never pick that intelligent. Animal. Because it can actually swim, which most people don't know. And that's that's not me. <laughs> Zoologist over here. Uh, I think I would be an animal that I, I just like to win at everything. I'm really, really competitive, and I, I'm okay if I'm not the best at first, but I have to end up being the best at the end. So maybe some of the audience can tell me an animal that's like that. If that makes any sense, it's almost like a bear. A bear. Lion. lion. Yeah, I would be a lion. I really like taking on new challenges. And uh, I'm also kind of lazy at times. Like, male, they don't really do a lot of work. They let the female lions go do all the hunting. <laughs> I, I use accountants like Ben to Whoa. be my, my lioness to do all the heavy lifting. And I just get all the credit. So, yeah, a lion would probably be a good bet. Wow. Well, uh, how, do, how, how do you follow, follow that, Josh? <laughs> you know, being, being like five foot two and, you know, weighing six pounds soaking wet, uh, <laughs> I want something really big and tall so I can feel what it's like to, to be Brandon. like that. So, so I, I'd say giraffe. Right. <laughs> yeah, giraffe. That's a good one. Um, I'm, I'm going to go with the bear. I'm lazy. I like to, I, I, if I could sleep six months at a time, I would, um, knowing there are no predators out there, so I can just eat all I want. <sighs> yeah, that sounds, that's the life. I totally agree with you, Jay, just for the record. Mm -hmm. I just want to be a unicorn. (laughs) Before you go, what what would you be? I knew that was going to be a rhetorical question. Uh, Actually, this is an interview question I ask people when I interview for my job. Um, And uh, after getting lots of answers, the one that I reflected most against, and I think, okay, that's kind of like who I want to be. And that was an elephant, because an elephant is very sturdy, calm, centered, and intelligent. Nice. Wow. Hire that man. What are the odds that he just asked that question so he could tell us all he wanted to be an elephant? Yeah, he had a... (laughs) That's just like when someone comes up to you and says... How do you work out? Yeah, how do you work out? I do CrossFit. (laughs) 
That's awesome. All right. What's that? Oh, Mindy. Uh, oh. Oh, oh, I almost. I really like anteaters. So. <laughs> That's the weirdest answer. Why are you They're whispering? So Why are you whispering? That, like, I really like anteaters. I'm going to yell that. I'm an anteater. <laughs> They're just, they're really beautiful. And they're really, like, their hair is so, and they have that weird nose. I don't know. They're it's not really an cool. answer I think anyone is expecting. <laughs> no, no. Uh, all right. Do we have another audience question over here? Yes. Daryl Putnam from Mountain View. And I'd be a chimpanzee because I like to get yeah. into trouble. <laughs> <laughs> this so, is going to be all the conversation at the cocktail party now. <laughs> I think it's a requirement now at the mic. <laughs> so uh, earlier today, uh, Tarl Yarbrough talked about um, how successful he was at flipping homes, and then one day he woke up and he found himself really miserable, and his wife, they, they weren't connecting. He had to take a beat and kind of redefine his business, and he's led it into a beautiful life. So I'd love to hear from the panel what it is that they, how they define their business so that they can better define their life. Great question. So I didn't catch the last bit of that. Could you repeat how you so, define your business? So how do you find your business so you can better define your life? Yeah, I, I mean, I think, I think for me, it starts completely with the mission has to align with my personal mission, right? And then the second piece is, you know, it, it, everyone's got a different personality, right? We talked about disc profiles earlier, uh, earlier today. And one of the profile, other components is the C, which, uh, which is the consistency, uh, or, or no, the S, which is the steadiness piece, right? It's the, the green bar if you're familiar with it. And mine, like, I have to be doing something different every day. If I'm doing the same thing day after day, I get bored immediately and I'm no, I'm no longer good at it. So that part of the business, one of the things that gets me going every day at bigger pockets is there's always a new challenge to solve, a new skill set that needs to be applied, a new book that needs to be read, a new concept, a new mental model I need to unpack. And so I'm happiest doing that and having a clear plan to grow and move forward and, and accelerate. So um, for, for me, I, the work that I found myself going into is something that fulfills me in that capacity where I'm able to do, go against, you know, apply my skills that, in that fashion. So my investing business is live-in flipping, and I do that because I'm cheap and I don't want to pay taxes, and that allows me to pay no taxes. So, so more, <laughs> I mean... So what, what's driving you? So more of the mission is, is what I'm looking for. What, what is that key component that, that, that drives you to make sure that your business is working well so it's not taking over your life? So at the end of the day, when you kick your feet up, you're, you're content and you're loving the person sitting next to you. My business kind of takes over my life because I <laughs> live in my construction zone. <laughs> Maybe I'm doing it wrong. Yeah. On that, pe- people, people assume that I'm like the busiest person of all time, which I think is funny because like every day I'll, pa- I'll finish up work around 6, 6.30, and then I go home and I don't touch any of it for the rest of the night. I almost never touch it on the weekends. I'm available if something's needed, but there's a time and place for business. I do, the, I do it there, and then I do not bring it home, which is very anti-millennial of me, I know, but that's how I like to go about things. And for me, that keeps me sane and consistent, and I've been able to co- continually apply myself to my work for the last five years straight without getting bored at all because I have that complete separation there. So it's, I think that's a sustainability, and you can get that or not have that no matter how big or small your business is, mm-hmm. in my opinion. All right, great. Uh, sir, over here on the left. 
So my name is David from Los Angeles, and first of all, I'd like to commend you for being leaders and educators in um, real estate investment and financial literacy. So my question is, and this, you guys speak to this on the Money Podcast, the rising cost of education and the national student debt crisis. I'm just wondering, with these students, these young and impressionable kids taking out more debt for education, how is that going to eventually impact the real estate industry? Because they can barely afford the, the loan payments as it is right now. So, so I've, I've actually got an opinion on this one. You know, the, 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 what? Yes, no, I got a very strong opinion. So, <laughs> and I've been meaning to make this a weekend project, uh, one of these weekends. But at some point, I want to model out what's the, the value add for a college education against the, the, the median college graduate versus the median non-college graduate. And what's the cost of that education, right? And at some point, at some discount rate, that is going to in- intersect if it hasn't already, where there's no value add from a, the average or median college degree, right? And at that point, a major shift is going to happen in the economy one way or another, regardless of the politics of the, of the, of the situation with all the student loan debt, because it's not going to be economical anymore. Prices are going to have to come down and demand is going to shift to something else. So that's going to have an interesting ramification on the economy, and I have no idea how that's going to impact everything else. But as far as real estate prices are going, what you're seeing is millennials are you know, a a portion of millennials, one in six millennials has $100,000 saved, right? The remaining portion are, you know, are are famously bad with money, (laughs) uh, which we, you know, I'm sure has been cited over and over again. But that portion is going to really dictate, I think, the housing market over the next 20 years. So that, those are your home buyers. We're the biggest generation in American history. So, you know, I'm not 100% concerned that that will impact your home, your home buyers, but I also think you're going to see a continuation of this long-term trend of uh, housing shifting to that rental segment. So single-family homes converting into single-family rentals um, because the people with more money are going to be able to buy more and more rental properties and outcompete the uh, first-time home buyer. So I don't know if that's a helpful yeah, concept on that. And, and that's already happening. So, I, And I'm going to butcher the data, but I, I just was reading something the other day about how uh, corporate ownership of single-family homes is uh, all-time highs. Um, and what you're starting to see is almost like the Europeification. Is that a word? I made it up. It's my first word. It's good. Yeah. Uh, the Europeification of the U.S. housing stock, which is, uh, as Scott said, you're, you're seeing less and less individual owners and more and more owners of multiple properties. And so, you know, across Europe, you've got really a, a rental population. Um, but at the same time that that's happening, I, I think to kind of piggyback on the college thing, I'm, I'm, you know, I've got a 10-year-old turning 11. You know, we're seven years out, and my wife and I constantly talk. I, I taught high school for a while, and we talk about education for our kids and college and the value of college. Um, one of the coolest things that I've seen through growing my business was, you know, you don't actually need a college degree to be successful. How many people here, I'm actually curious, who here does not have a college degree? I mean, that's a pretty good number. And of those people, I, I'm going to pledge that you're probably all fairly successful in your own way, shape, or form. So you know, more and more, if I ask that question next year, in two years, and five years, those numbers are probably going to go up. And there's reasons for that. You know, the reasons are there's if, if you're on the engineering side, for example, there's coding schools if you want to learn how to code, technical schools that are providing skills that 
you needed a college degree for before, but you may not need a college degree for now. And so we're getting to this really funny inflection point where, you know, hey, listen, you know, to my kids, what I say is work hard, study hard. But when the time comes, you know, if you want to just go for kind of general studies, I'm not going to, you know, pay or I'm not going to offer to help to send you to some very expensive school. You can go to a local school, you know, until you figure out what you want to do. Because, you know, and we're fortunate enough to, to not have that, the debt be as much of an issue. But, you know, for the average person, like, I, it, you, you can go, you know, if you go to Harvard, obviously you can study whatever the hell you want. You're probably going to do pretty well in your life, right? If you go to the Ivies, you're going to, you know, Stanford, MIT, you go to these places, your life is pretty taken care of. But if you go and you study, you know, philosophy at where I went, Washington University, great school, you know, you're going to be burdened with a hell of a lot of debt and you're going to get out of school making $30,000 a year saying, why the hell did I do that? Um, and then all of a sudden now, how are you going to own a property? How are you going to do this? You got these crazy payments. So that shift, I, I think we're starting to move towards. Um, and I think it's going to accelerate as technology makes it easier and easier to, uh, to get educated in these different areas. Awesome. So to tackle the question from a, a slightly different perspective, but to answer the question of what's going to happen, just something to think about. I don't obviously know what's going to happen, um, but something to think about from an economic perspective. So the economy, as a lot of us know, especially if you've read my book, Recession Proof Real Estate Investing, um, the, the economy works in cycles. Goes up, goes down, goes up, goes down. One of the main drivers of that going up and going down is debt. And so we often refer to this five, six, seven, eight-year cycle as a business cycle, but we also refer to it as the debt cycle, because one of the things we see is as the economy goes up, Americans, both personal and corporate, build debt. And eventually we get to the inflection point at the top, and the market starts to turn, and we have a recession, and it goes down. And one of the things we tend to see in a recession is we see a deleveraging of that debt. That debt goes away. People, companies file for bankruptcy or they restructure their debt. So at the end of a recession, at the bottom, before we start that next expansion, we tend to see a very relatively low amount of debt, both personally and and corporate. And that's worked for 160 years. Now, the problem we're seeing today is that historically that debt has been revolving debt. It's been non-government college debt. The interesting thing with college debt is you can't bankruptcy it away. It doesn't go away in a bankruptcy. And we have $9 trillion in personal debt these days, and a very high percentage of that for the first time is college debt. So what we're likely to see is in the next recession, while a lot of that personal debt goes away, the college debt's not going to go away. And so what we're going to see is we're going to get to the bottom of that recession, and debt's going to be disproportionately high compared to previous recessions. And so we're not going to be able to dig our way out of the recession nearly as well. We're not going to see that bottom as as nicely defined as we typically do. And I think at that point, the government's going to have to step in and they're going to have to change something policy-wise. They're either going to have to say, we're going to get rid of some of this debt. Um, We're going to allow people to restructure this debt. We're going to allow this debt to be discharged in bankruptcy. But I think it's going to actually impact the U.S. economy negatively over the next couple economic cycles if the government doesn't change policy. Don't know exactly what they're going to do, but I think that, that it's going to have a, a big impact and something's going to have to be done. Thank you. Awesome. Great, sir. 
Yeah, my name is Mark. I'm from Fort Lauderdale. Uh, we're in real estate and restaurants. And I just want to say one thing to, to uh, Scott first. Don't let your wife listen or your future wife listen to this podcast. You chose fruit before your <laughs> wedding. You're going to get a lot of crap when you go home. <laughs> so, so I have a business that's about two hours away that I have to visit about once a week. And um, about four or five years ago, I actually changed the payroll day to Thursday so I can coincide it with the podcast. And I tell you, and we love Brandon. You, you've been great and a great inspiration. Now I have to find two more properties that are two hours away so I can make sure I listen to Money Show and the business podcast. But the um, question really is for Josh. And, you know, you guys have come, become our extended family knowing you and listening to you for so long. How is your daughter? Thank you for asking. Uh, she's, she's doing well, and I'm actually going to, tomorrow in my keynote, you'll, you'll learn more. Okay, great. Thanks. I appreciate you asking. Great. Additionally, Josh, would you rather fight a thousand duck, horse-sized ducks? What? Did I screw it up? <laughs> <laughs> this was submitted. Would you rather fight one horse-sized duck or a hundred duck-sized horses? Other way around. Could I be a super chicken? <laughs> <laughs> yes. A thousand say, duck-sized horses? Yes. Excellent. <laughs> All right. Over here on the left, please. I'm Cameron O'Connor out of Indianapolis, Indiana. Uh, 25 years old, currently house hacking. Uh, just quit my job last week and uh, wanted to ask you guys what would be the on, on. what would be the single most uh, valuable tool or method or something that uh, you would uh, did or wish you would have taken advantage of to springboard yourself to uh, financially being free. Yeah. So, well, <laughs> so for me, when 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 I was. 25, I quit my job and joined a startup called Bigger Pockets. Um, and so, yeah, at, the, at that point, the, uh, you know, what I would say is one, you got to find great mentors. So I had Josh, Brandon, some of the other folks on this stage here to, to learn from. Two, uh, it was kind of a relentless obsession almost with self education. I think I read 50 books a year uh, on various topics, and I was constantly getting continual intense pressure from these two to learn conversion Excel and all the other online tools and things that we needed to learn, right? And the third was the accumulation of capital that I could readily access. Um, so the, the cash in my bank account that I could use for what I ended up using it for was a house hack. But regardless of that, some opportunity that I can take advantage of that I have complete control over. So those would be my three. I'd like to add one to that. First of all, congratulations on leaving your job. That is absolutely phenomenal. I'm so happy for you. Um, I would recommend you network your butt off and specifically seek out other people who are already financially independent. Because you're in this unique situation right now where a lot of people, frankly, that are outside of like these circles, people who are not financially independent they are not going to have any idea what you're talking about. They're going to think you're kind of crazy. They're going to be like, oh, good luck with all that. You know, it's just people, if they're, if they're not like-minded, they're just going to question every decision and you're going to start questioning yourself. So I would recommend a big action item to do as soon as possible is to leverage these relationships in here. Find other people in your local community who have similar values and mindsets and views on money and financial independence that you do. Yeah, All right. I, I, I would. I would also say, um, 
part of being an entrepreneur, part of being self-employed is it's a roller coaster. You're going to have good days. You're going to have bad days. And you have to kind of take a perspective above the day-to-day. And you have to realize that every day you just need to move forward. And no matter what happens, there are going to be days you want to quit. There are going to be days you don't feel like getting out of bed. Get out of bed, take one step forward. Take two steps forward. Just every day keep moving forward. And if you ever question, say, I'll have that question tomorrow. If, I, if, I don't, if you don't think you can do it, if you, if you say, yeah, this isn't working, put that off for a day or two. Just say, I'm gonna, for the next two days, I'm just going to keep moving forward, and I'll think about all the things that are going wrong in two or three days. And just keep moving forward, because in two or three days, your perspective's going to change, and things are going to get better. And so you just got to fight through the bad, and, and the good will come. Don't give up. Create an LLC and then open up a self-directed solo 401k. <laughs> Well, that's a, that's a good point, Jay, about having bad days. I'm curious uh, if you guys have any opinions on what part of being an investor is the hardest for you, Brandon. Well, as, a, as an entrepreneur, as an investor, you are an entrepreneur. You're acting in that capacity, at least. Even if you have another job, you're investing world. You're an entrepreneur because you don't have a boss telling you what to go do. And I think there's two huge struggles that I found when I got out of being a cop and I got into being an entrepreneur, a business owner, a full-time investor, or whatever. The first is that I was not prepared for what Jay said very articulately, and I will say very crassly, is (laughs) entrepreneurial bipolarism. You are going to go from, I am a lion and I can take down anything I want, to I am a loser and I don't want anyone to see me every single week. It's insane how your highs and lows make no sense, and you go through this, and you'll just think something's wrong with you, and I'm telling you, that is like a part of the process. Every entrepreneur feels that. I guarantee you, I've never talked to Josh, but he would tell you there's times he thought bigger pockets could take over the world. And there's times he thought, I don't even want anyone to know that I made this website because it sucks that bad. <laughs> and the truth is somewhere in the middle, right? And the second piece that nobody told me was that we all look, no, I shouldn't say we all, we often look at a boss as a bad thing. A job is a bad thing. Structure is what we have to free ourselves from. That is the enemy. And we don't realize that oftentimes we operate our best within structure. The very best athletes have coaches. You know, like the Navy SEALs have a very tight system where they have to be at a certain place at a, a certain time and tons of training. And, and the people who, who operate the best do it under discipline and structure. And when you lose that, it's very easy to start slacking off and not recognizing you're slacking off. So the advice that I would give you as an entrepreneur is to focus on what we call KPIs. That's a key performance indicator. What thing in your job, whatever it is, is the thing that will actually directly result to you generating income. You can spend eight hours in an office answering emails, designing a logo, creating a system, creating a spreadsheet, filling in boxes, and you will go home and you will have done zero work. You didn't do anything that moved you closer to your goal. You have to figure out, however it is you make money, what is the things that will actually result in making money? So for me, as a real estate agent, it is obvious, it is just talking to people. If I just talk to people and say, hey, let me know when someone wants to buy or sell a house, I made money, but just I haven't got it yet, right? Putting a listing in the MLS, taking the pictures, getting a form signed, that does nothing to make me money. That's just recognizing money that I've already made. So if you're an investor, it's going to be telling everyone you know, will you tell me when someone has a distressed property? Will you keep me in mind when you hear about somebody who has a house that they might not flip? How many wholesalers did I talk to today and ask them, what do I need to do to jump to the top of your list? How many contractors did I talk to and said, hey, when you come across a house that's in really bad shape and you can't get the deal, bring it to me. 
If you let yourself slip away from KPIs and get caught up in all the other things in the business, you will look back over three months and say, where's all that money that I thought I was going to be making? It is so easy to do it when you don't have a boss and you don't have built-in accountability. I have a question. How much money do you want to make this next year? Throw out a number. $50,000. $50,000. Okay. To make $50,000 next year, if you're working full-time, you need to make how much an hour? 25 an hour? Or so, if you if you work full time, you're working about two thousand hours a year. To make fifty thousand dollars, you need to make twenty five dollars an hour. If you want to make twenty five dollars an hour, you cannot focus on doing things that generate less than twenty five dollars an hour in your job. Which means, if you want to put a listing in the MLS, you can hire somebody to do that for for ten or twelve dollars an hour. That's not the best use of your time. The best use of your time is the things that are generating you $25 an hour at least, or $50 an hour, or $100 an hour, or $1,000 an hour. And those things are acquiring new clients if you're, if you're in a service business, acquiring new properties if you're looking to buy new properties, finding deals, raising money. Those are the things that are going to generate $25, $50, $100, $500 an hour. So think about that every day. I need to make $25 an hour. I should not be doing anything right now myself that's generating less than $25 an hour. Go hire somebody that does the $12 an hour jobs. You make $50 an hour and, and you're netting more than 25. So always focus on that 25 number. And when you want to make a half million dollars a year, don't do anything that, that's generating you less than $250 an hour. Awesome. That's great advice. All right, so we do have about 10 minutes left, and I know we have two more audience questions here. So, sir, what is your question? Mitch Klein, Evergreen, Colorado. And uh, why all the hate for Dancing with the Stars? <laughs> but, no, no, just kidding. Uh, so, I, you know, I hear you, you ask all of your podcast guests, a uh, couple uh, in the Famous Four uh, business book and uh, real estate book, but... If you only had the bandwidth to read one book in your entire life, what would you choose? <laughs> I, what did you say? That could be business, real estate, self-help, whatever you choose. I mean, I, I could do this one. For me, it's a book I read in, in, in a tough time. Uh, it's called The Monk Who Sold His Ferrari. A bit of a cheesy book, but it, it, it kind of follows the story of this attorney who is... Uh, uh, yeah, top performer, you know, he's killing it, he's crushing it, he's driving the Lambo, uh, you know, he's driving the Ferrari. And he's going through all this, and all of a sudden he has this massive heart attack, and he, you know, collapses, and the story continues from the viewpoint of, of his men- mentee, mentee, and who, you know, has been growing and becoming more and more successful. And he's now, you know, overweight, He's got all the, the things of life, the luxuries, but uh, this young man comes into to his office, and the, I'm going to ruin it for you, so you, know, you may not want to listen, but uh, this young man comes in, and, and the young man was actually his former mentor, and he went off. You know, it's a fantasy, a fable, but I, I love these fable stories, like the richest man in Babylon and things like that, um, and um, it just kind of walks him through all these rituals and different ways to think about how to improve upon his life. And it's things that we've had Hal Elrod on and other folks really dive into and talk about visioning, meditation, goal setting, things like that. 
But for me, that book um, has been fantastic. And, and if it's not that, that book, yeah, by, by the way, and, and Brandon can attest to this, like, I was the biggest, like, those books are all BS. But as he and I have talked a lot over the years about different books and we've shared stories and things like that, you know, I, I have to say that reading, besides being fundamental, is, um, no, reading, and Scott too, obviously, like, I mean, we all read a lot. A lot. And, and I've noticed that amongst the people that I believe are the most successful people and happiest people that I've met, they tend to read and consume books a lot. Anyway, um, check it out. Well, the correct answer is actually any book by Bigger Pockets Publishing. That's, That's what I was going to say. Too. Yeah. I was going to say that. You've got you like just... 12 books between the people up here. Uh, anyone else? Um, oh, the places you'll go. Oh, nice. Dr. Awesome. Pizza. All right. How not to die. <laughs> it's a great book, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, all right. So for our last audience question, ma'am. Hi, Lucia Rushton, realtor in DFW. Has anybody on the panel made an investment with cryptocurrency? And to follow up from that, how do you feel that cryptocurrency will play a role in real estate moving forward? Brandon has a great YouTube video on this, <laughs> if you haven't seen it yet. Nothing with the dots. No, I, I, just wrote, I made a video once called uh, Bitcoin is a Stupid, Horrible, Terrible Investment. <laughs> and then the next day it crashed. And so you're welcome. <laughs> Jay. Jay. I'm going to let Jay actually answer that. So, so I have some investments in some Bitcoin companies, equity investments. Um, I've all, or not Bitcoin, I'm sorry, crypto companies. Um, I've also done a bunch of crypto investing. I'm not a huge believer in crypto. I'm a huge believer in blockchain, though. Blockchain is the underlying technology for, for crypto. Um, being a, it's kind of like back in, in, to, in 1999, um, people saying, so what do you think about pets.com? Um, or what do you think about amazon.com? Um, there, are a lot, there were a lot of websites back then, and I couldn't have said this one was going to do well or this one was going to do poorly, but I think it was safe to say at that point that the underlying technology and the internet in general was going to do well. And I think it's the same way with crypto today. Bitcoin might do well. Ethereum might do well. They all might do poorly. million cryptocurrencies out there. Who knows how they're going to do? But the underlying technology... Blockchain, I think, is going to be a foundational technology moving forward in terms of how I think it's going to affect real estate. Uh, I think the biggest way is that there are a number of companies that are focused on technology around fractional ownership. So imagine a situation where you own a Picasso painting and you want to raise some money. You don't want to sell your Picasso painting for $200 million, but you'd love to raise $10 million dollars. So you want to sell 5% of your Picasso painting. Blockchain, and basically something like cryptocurrency on top of it, could make it easy for you to sell fractional shares or shares of your painting to other people in a way that they can trust that they actually own it, they can sell it, they can trade it, and eventually get paid for it. And blockchain provides that the ability to do that. I think we'll see a lot in the real estate and fractional ownership space with blockchain moving forward, where syndicators will be able to use blockchain and that type of technology um, to raise money. People like you and me will be able to buy a single family house and say, hey, I want to sell 25% of that on the open market to raise some money so I can buy my next house. Instead of going to a private lender or portfolio lender or getting a Fannie Mae loan, 
You may just sell 70% of that in, in equity, or you may use it to get debt. Um, so I think blockchain, and again, separate from cryptocurrency, I think blockchain is going to be foundational in technology, and I think it's going to have a big impact on the real estate space. Crypto in general, I think it's, it's I don't know. With, with cryptocurrency, you know, you're, you're investing in a store of value, right? A, a, new, a new currency, right? And we, we live in the United States of America. And so if you try to pay me in Bitcoin, I can refuse. But I can't refuse payment in dollars, right? So why, why Bitcoin versus Ethereum versus another currency or another currency? You know, the, it, it, you're betting when you buy that 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 currency is going to be adopted and people are going to accept that as a store of value in the future. So to me, that doesn't... You know, for an investment for long-term wealth, it's got to generate cash flow and have a chance at long-term appreciation, which, you know, to me, these cryptos don't offer either. So it has to be one, you know, you have to hope that everybody adopts that currency for it to work out. So, you know, and and even in that case, if it becomes a widely accepted currency at a larger scale, then it becomes more like like any other currency, like a, like gold, right? Gold is not is not an appreciating asset. Gold is a store of value, right? That is, that is kind of used as a hedge against inflation, right? And, and one of my favorite Warren Buffett quotes is, you know, do, do you invest in gold, Warren? And he says, well, if, you know, if you took all the gold in the world, you could pile it up into a cube about 64 feet in uh, length and, and, and height and all that, all that good stuff. And that would be worth $7 trillion at the time. And you could, instead, I could buy all the farmland in the United States and ExxonMobil seven times over. And which is the better way to build wealth long term? You know, it's, it's the same ex- thought experiment, I think, extended all the way to cryptocurrency. So for me, it's, it's if you think it's going to go up and you want to bet on it, that's great. But how are you going to make a le- how are you going to retire on Bitcoin? I don't know. I can give you a, a good way to look at it that will bring some clarity. <laughs> if you'd like, of course. During the gold rush, the amateur said, where am I going to go strike gold? I'm going to go check that load. I'm going to go to that mountain. I'm going to go to that river. And they spent a lot of money and they invested money into trying to strike it rich. There is no way you could have known where the gold was going to be, just like what Scott was saying. Which cryptocurrency is going to be big? You'll drive yourself mad trying to figure that out. And it's not a KPI. It will make you think that you're doing some kind of work, but you're really not getting anywhere. You know who guaranteed to make money during the gold rush? The people who sold the materials to the, to the miners or the 49ers. That's what you want to be a part of. And that's really what Jay's saying, whether it was the internet or it was blockchain, it was being a part of the infrastructure. You're not going to miss if you do that. And one of the reasons that I love real estate is if for some reason Ethereum or, or uh, Bitcoin takes off and I couldn't have known, I don't care. Pay me my rent in that thing. <laughs> right? Like I, I win. You, you guys can try to figure out where the gold's going to be. You all got to bring it to me at the end of the day and pay me for these supplies. <laughs> Great analogy to end on. But just uh, picking back in, just to clarify, people are buying houses using Bitcoin. But, but we don't know the, va- the value of Bitcoin shifts every single day by vast percentages. So, you know, you're, if you accept Bitcoin as your form of payment, you're going to get paid on a million dollar house. And tomorrow that payment is worth nine hundred and fifty thousand dollars. I, you know, I, I, it's right now it's a gimmick. If you're accepting that until there's any form of stability in that currency, you're gambling. 
And it's fine. Go ahead and gamble. Like, but, but, you know, can you not make as much on that property selling it for cash? So I, I would just say, you know, I think it's exceptionally risky. Um, you might as well, you know, accept rubles or, or you know, Zimbabwean dollars. Thank you. Sure. All right. Thank you. We do have one more write-in question, and it's for you, Mindy. You love bigger pockets, do you not? I love bigger pockets. Okay. Oh, my God. And you also hate mushrooms. Is that true? More than life itself. So this- More than, no, that's I love more than life. I love, I love life. I hate mushrooms. How sad is with the- <laughs> So this question. With the burning passion of 10,000 suns. The, the, this question comes uh, all the way from Hillary C. from Denver, Colorado. Wow. <laughs> and she'd like to know, if you had to choose to never go on Bigger Pockets ever again in your life or eat a mushroom, what would you choose? Uh... Hillary! <laughs> I think First we have all, a mushroom for a you. horrible question. <laughs> we won't make you answer. Turn, turn to Scott when you answer. <laughs> How about this? Do you hate mushrooms more than Josh hates pickles? Oh, I don't know. Nobody hates anything more than Josh hates pickles. No. We got stories. We have lots of stories. Yes. So, <laughs> so many stories. Um, all right. Well, thank you guys so much for being here. We really appreciate this. Can we give everyone a round of applause? Awesome. Well, thank you guys for doing this with us. This was a lot of fun. It was our first time doing a live podcast. Um, Hopefully it went pretty well in all your minds. I had a good time. Just a bit of housekeeping. We do have a cocktail party uh, right after this, sponsored by Memphis Invest. It's right out of these doors. After that, there is also a after party at Jason Aldean's downtown. If you guys look in your bags that we gave you. There is an Uber code that you can use to Uber down there and also put on that yellow Bigger Pockets premium wristband that will get you free drinks at Jason Aldean's this evening. Um, and then tomorrow morning, we'll be starting again at 9 a.m. with Josh's keynote. So make sure to be there as well.